Gordon and Norma Yeager were married 72 years. They passed away this week, one hour apart from one another. They've been rushed to the hospital in Des Moines, Iowa after a car accident. Gordon was 94, Norma was 90. Both in the same room in the ICU unit, placed there together, Gordon reached out and grabbed Norma's hand as they both slipped away. In fact, Gordon was the first to stop breathing, but his heart monitor continued to register a beat even after he breathed his last. Family was a little perplexed. They called the nurse in. She explained to them that it was just Norma's heartbeat pulsating through Gordon as their hands were still clasped together. Most of us would like to end that way, right? (laughs) Most of us would like to have the kind of marriage that would end that way, the kind of love that would last that long and still be just as strong at the end as it was at the beginning. Most of us love the thought of our very heartbeat pulsating through the one that we have called our husband or our bride. But the Bible offers hope not only how to die that way, but how to live that way. How to go through life where your companionship with your spouse flourishes, your, your love grows deeper and deeper, your desire to be with one another increases, and your hearts beat as one. And that really is the picture that has been ours as we've been looking at Ephesians chapter 5. I want to invite you to turn back with me there. Over the last couple of weeks, we have been capturing this vision, or in some cases recapturing this vision, of what God's intent is in marriage. Really, it is a a vision of a different kind of love, a different kind of marriage that we've been seeing, a different kind of marriage because it's a spirit-filled marriage. It's a marriage that is really above the ideal of even what is achievable by those in the world because it's been granted to us to receive the Holy Spirit, to be able to walk in the Holy Spirit and walking in it. Paul says it will have certain fruits, certain characteristics in our lives and manifest itself in certain ways in our marriage. Spirit-filled marriage involves, first of all, wives who graciously submit to their husbands as head over them. That's what Paul discusses in verse 22 through 24. That's the evidence of a spirit-filled wife. And then in verse 25 through 32, he begins to discuss spirit-filled husbands. They will be those, he says, who are lovers. That's the dominant quality he uses to define a spirit-filled husband. He doesn't use the word lead. He doesn't use the word protect or provide. All those things may be incorporated. But he uses the word love six times in these few verses because it is the overarching responsibility, the overarching defining quality of a spirit-filled husband. This is his mandate from the very beginning. Husbands, verse 25, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And he, he sort of takes that, and, and in the next couple of verses, or next few verses, he basically elaborates on that and gives us some distinguishing characteristics of exactly what that love will look like, what spirit-filled love of husbands will be defined as. We began looking at this last week, uh, taking a look at the first three. Remember, the first, uh, first one was a, a spirit-filled husband. His love will be according to the love of Christ. That's the dominant idea. 
That's the thing Paul continues to come back through, come back to by comparison throughout this whole passage. This is the key to the kind of fulfilling and blessing that God intends for your marriage is the daily molding of your love uh, of your wife according to the love of Christ. The second distinguishing characteristic is a husband's love will be an act of the will. And that is to say that this is a command to be obeyed in season and out of season, in good times and in bad, for better and for worse. You're commanded to love by God day in and day out. No conditions set upon it. No circumstances that make it contingent. It doesn't really matter uh, about your wife's particular worthiness on one day or another. It doesn't matter about your particular feelings on one day or another. It's a choice you make each day to love as Christ loved. Thirdly, third distinguishing characteristic of spirit-filled love really kind of builds on that, is that a husband's love must be in spite of his wife's imperfections. In spite of his wife's imperfections. This is the kind of love that Paul has in mind, a love that is dominated by the grace of Christ, who gave himself for us. Romans 5 says he did that even while we were still sinners. Even when we were weak. He didn't choose us because of our perfection. He didn't set his love on us because somehow we were worthy of it or lived up to it. And it isn't our worthiness that continues to maintain His love. This is the kind of love that God demands of spirit-filled husbands for their wives. A love that is there when she perhaps is worthy or even at times when she's weak. This kind of sacrificial laying down of yourself, setting aside your own personal interests, all of those things out of a fulfillment of God's command to you, out of a desire for a deeper marriage, a greater intimacy, out of a blessing for your wife. Now, none of that in in any way implies, though, that this sacrifice that you're doing, this this laying down of uh, yourself is in any way to indulge your wife in her particular sins. It isn't supposed to be, in other words, enabling love. Paul isn't calling for this kind of self uh, sacrifice uh, or, or excuse me Paul isn't calling for the kind of uh, self-love that masquerades as self-sacrifice that happens you know some people in the name of unconditional and sacrificial love actually become facilitators for what might be manipulative and sinful schemes of their wives rather than confronting their wives rather than standing up to them when they're following some sinful desire, they capitulate to her and her sinful pursuits in a sense maybe of wanting to keep some sort of superficial peace in the home, an unwillingness to, to engage in your role of coming alongside of her as brother in Christ, maybe some fear of reprisal or whatever it might be. And so really out of a sense of self-love, you become a facilitator for your wife in her own destructive patterns. Well, none of that is really in Paul's view. And that becomes obvious as we move to our fourth characteristic. That this this spirit-filled love, Paul tells us in verse 26, will be a sanctifying love. A husband's love should be a sanctifying love. This This is the way Paul describes how Christ loved the church. He says he did it. He gave himself so that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word. So spirit-filled love does that. It sanctifies. 
This is the result of, of, of truly loving your wife the way God has designed. That's the paradigm that Paul brings up here. This is the way he says Christ loved the church. This is the purpose for which he sacrificed for us so that he could sanctify us. And this is exactly what loving husbands will do for their wives. This sanctification Paul describes as having cleansed her by the washing of water. It's very unfortunate that it's almost inexplicable really that most commentators here immediately impose on this verse some notion of baptism. It's really a patristic hangover, something that was, that was brought over from the early church. But it's unfortunate because there's no mention here whatsoever of baptism. There's no indication in any way that Paul has in mind some sort of ritual or outward ceremony. He's not talking about some outward act. He's talking about an inner transformation, an inner work, a spiritual work in our life. Which baptism doesn't accomplish. It's of course very important. It's an important first step. It's a command from the Lord for everyone who wants to be a follower of Christ. A disciple of Christ. That he would follow the Lord in baptism. So we don't diminish that. But we're clear that the act of baptism. Or the ceremony of baptism does nothing to cleanse you. It doesn't infuse any power into you. It doesn't infuse any grace into you. It doesn't do anything to you. It's an act of worship and obedience to the Lord. Nothing mystical, nothing magical there. That's not what Paul has in mind here either. He's not talking about some ceremony, some outward ritual. He's talking about the power of, of God working in your life, bringing about regeneration. He's talking about being born again. The moment when Christ cleanses your life of sin. By forgiving you of the guilt of your sin and then wiping away the old life. Washing you clean so that you stand before God currently spotless and righteous, pure before Him, and you are progressively being sanctified as you walk before Him. This is the way Scripture speaks about cleansing. This is what it says, 1 Corinthians 6, Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But such were some of you, but you were washed, he says. You were sanctified, you were justified in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a way that Scripture speaks about salvation. It's a washing, it's a cleansing. Titus 3.5, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of the works that we've done in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration. So this is, this is what the Scripture uses to speak of. It's really picking up the language of Ezekiel 36 and verse 25, when God promises, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will wash you and cleanse you from all your iniquity. This is the work of the new covenant. This is the work of regeneration. This is the work that God accomplishes in your heart and life whenever you come to Him. Immediately, instantaneously, He washes you. This is what Jesus meant whenever He was washing the disciples' feet. He said to Peter, if, you, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. So no matter how filthy you are when you come to Christ, no matter how much you've messed up your life, no matter how offensive your life has been to God, when you come to Christ, He utterly cleanses you. He utterly cleans you. 
wipes away everything, washes you to leave you perfectly spotless and pure before Him. How does He do it? Paul says it right here. By the washing of water with the Word. It's Word. It's the Word by which we come to faith. The Word which God uses to bring us to new life, James 1 says. More specifically, Paul uses the word rhema here rather than the more familiar word logos. But it's reminiscent of Jesus' words, John 15, 3. Already, he says, you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. So he's not talking about any specific word. He's certainly not talking about some priestly pronouncement at baptism. He's talking about the cleansing power of the gospel. He's talking about the cleansing work of the word, which is the gospel. That's the cleansing tool. So this is a defining characteristic of Christ's love. It was sacrificial, but it wasn't pointless sacrifice. It was sacrifice with a view to the gospel. It was sacrificial in order to save. It was sacrificial in order to sanctify. It was sacrificial in order to cleanse. A spirit-filled husband will recognize that. A spirit-filled husband will have that same vision, and he will do the same. For him to love as Christ loves means that he will have, therefore, a gospel-centered home. He'll have a gospel-centered love that produces a gospel-centered marriage. And he will continually be bathing his marriage and bathing his bride in the gospel truth. Which, of course, means that he's continually bathing her in the word of Christ. Continually bringing her back to the sacrifice of Christ, the love of Christ, the grace of Christ. Continually making her stand firm on the place that Christ has built for her. Continually bringing her back to the rest and peace that she finds in him. Continually transforming her with a vision of Christ. He'll have a sanctifying influence. Not necessarily mollifying her sinful pursuits, but sanctifying her and always reestablishing the gospel in her view. That's spirit-filled love. Paul also says, fifthly, fifth distinguishing characteristic we, I think, can identify here, spirit-filled love, Paul says, is beautifying love. A husband's love will be a beautifying love which is really a byproduct of this sanctification. Paul says that the sanctifying influence of Christ, sacrifice for the church, was, he says, so that, verse 27, he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and blameless. So this moves from purity to beauty, And Paul says that God did all this, or Christ did all this, so that he could present the church to himself in splendor. In doxos is the word. You understand that from doxology. The the glorification, the magnification, the splendor of the church, his bride. You know, in our culture, in our Western culture, this is... This sort of pictures the, uh, the wedding ceremony. Whenever the, the wife goes and prepares herself, she makes herself as beautiful as possible. She does herself all up and she comes out to present herself, or I should say she's brought down by her father to be presented to his future son-in-law. 
In, in uh, Jewish culture, it was actually the best man who did that. He, he would actually go fetch the bride, and she, having prepared herself with uh, all of her, her, her beauty, she would come and present herself in her most glorious, splendorous time, hopefully of all of her life, to be presented to her husband. It's interesting. Paul says in this passage that Christ is the one doing the presenting. He's the one doing the preparing. He's the one coming to present the bride to himself. All this sort of points to the the impact that a a, a spirit-filled husband's love will have on his wife. He will have a beautifying impact. He'll have a beautifying effect. All of the sanctifying work, all the sacrificial uh, uh, love that he gives to his wife, all of this will result in her splendorous beauty. Paul says that he defines it here as without spot or wrinkle, spilos and putida. It's a word, the first word means stain, the second word just simply means a fold of the skin. Very vivid, very real, very literal language. In case anything else was left out, he adds to that and, or, or any such thing. I mean, nothing is overlooked in this beautifying process. Now, all this clearly is speaking of spiritual terms. Paul says there at the end of verse 27, as a result of all this, she will be holy, or the church particularly will be holy and without blemish. This is, this is spiritual splendor. This is spiritual beauty. This is glory and beauty uh, in which, by the way, you and I will be presented before Christ one day at His return Presented before Him absolutely clean, absolutely pure, without any blemish, without any plaguing iniquity. All of that completely removed, pure and spotless in the glorious splendor of His holiness and righteousness. Paul says this is the same thing that's going to happen in a spirit-filled marriage. Christ's love that is doing that in us will be mirrored by a husband's love doing that in in the life of his wife. All these spiritual effects, all this spiritual beauty. But you shouldn't think that simply because this is all spiritual, that it is in any way less beautiful. Or that it's in any way less real. Or to say it this way, you shouldn't think that simply because Paul's focusing on spiritual things, that it is in any way less attractive to those who look at her. This isn't secondary beauty. It really isn't even hidden beauty. It's very real beauty. In fact, this is the missing secret in all the supposed beauty secrets that are out there today. All of your creams, all of your spas, all of your Botox treatments, all that. None of it touches this. And yet this is the missing secret. The hidden person of the heart that Peter says is the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet Spirit. It's a beauty of a virtuous heart, a beauty of a virtuous life, a good and righteous and honorable inner person. This is the beauty, by the way, that Paul, that Peter says, greatly influences your husband. More than all the outward adornment, more than all the braiding of your hair, all the putting on of jewelry, more than all that outward stuff. The Bible would teach you that no matter what the world around you says, this is the beauty that every man most admires. This is the beauty that he will most adore in his wife. 
All the external beauty you can manufacture, in other words, will never capture your husband's heart if it isn't backed up by this inner beauty. That's why the way, by, by the way, why Proverbs speaks of the noble woman. It says, who can find a virtuous woman? The implication being that she's rare. A woman who has that kind of quality of character in her is rare. And like everything else in the world, when it's rare, it is priceless. It is, it is exclusive. It is more valuable. It doesn't come along every day. This is the testimony of the virtuous woman in Proverbs 31. Her beauty is in her inner being. Verse 25 says, strength and dignity are her clothing. In other words, her character is her clothing. That's how she adorns herself. She's marked by an inner strength and an inner dignity. And he contrasts that by saying she smiles at the future because of that. In other words, she doesn't clothe herself with fear, with anxiety, with worry, with pestering, with nagging. She clothes herself with a strength. She clothes herself with a dignity that allows her to look into all the uncertainties of the future and smile at it. Because of her dignity and strength. And it is alluring to her husband. You go through that chapter and you see her with every kind of virtue, clothing herself with purity and honesty and kindness and wisdom and holiness. So that it comes at the end of the chapter and it says, Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord, she will be praised. She will be. She will be. Just as true today as it was when it was first written. This is the real beauty secret. This is the real allure of a godly and virtuous life. And so as husbands, Paul wants us to realize that we have a hand in producing that. We have a role to encourage that. We have a role to cultivate that in our wives, to produce in our wives that inner beauty that we most desire. We've been given that responsibility of bathing her in the gospel, of continually driving her heart closer and closer to the Lord, of reminding her of her rest in Christ, of showing her what grace and mercy and love from Christ looks like in daily life. This is the beautifying aspect of your love for your wife. And it ought to result in a relationship where her inner character is growing year by year and her inner beauty is growing all the time her secret person of the heart is growing and at the same time it is growing in your eyes more captivating more alluring more enchanting more charming all of this is spirit-filled love paul draws the comparison out even further in verse 29 gives us a six distinguishing characteristic of this spirit-filled love he tells us a husband's love must be as he loves himself in the same way he says husbands should love their wives as their own bodies he's really just extrapolating what he's already said if this love is going to look or be like the love of christ it's going to be as natural as your love for your own body nobody ever naturally hated his own body irregardless of all the psychological categories of self-hate today all the uh, depression and self 
cutting or whatever it might be, which are really just distortions of self-love. They arise out of people who, who are somehow dejected because others are not treating them with the same sort of uh, 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 exalted view that they have of themselves. And so disappointed, therefore, in life, they turn to all these measures. Paul doesn't, doesn't even make a allowance for those kind of categories because he recognizes it is the natural thing for all of us to love our own bodies. To nurture, to take care of our own bodies. To cleanse, to protect. You know the amazing thing? We, we do that despite of a, our, our body's imperfections, right? Well, you know, we don't really say, you know, my body's really not living up to my expectations. It's let me down, and so therefore I'm done. I'm not feeding it, I'm not caring for it. We look out for our own bodies, right? In spite of, in spite of all of its imperfections. And in case you're unaware, you can ask your wife, I'm sure. She'll help you see some. It all lacks perfection, and yet we continue to care for it, to nurture it. This is Paul's point. He's helping us see what spirit-filled love looks like. It's continuous. It's, it's as you would love your own body. It's just as Christ does, by the way. Christ does this because, as he says down in verse 30, we're members of his body. We're members of his body. We've become a part of his body, and therefore he loves and cares for us as he would himself. You're not now some detached entity from Christ. Because of the gospel, you have been brought into the body of Christ and you therefore receive the same love that Christ would have for His own body. It's an amazing thought. Paul says this is spirit-filled love though. This is spirit-filled love. And the beautiful thing is that in the wisdom of God's design for marriage, loving your wife as your own self is loving yourself. That's what Paul says there at the end, right? At the end of that verse, he who loves his wife, verse 28, loves himself. In other words, there's no better investment that you can make in your own happiness, your own serenity, your own joy than investing in your wife. Investing in her joy, investing in her pleasure, her gladness, and investing in the shaping of her virtue. No better investment you can make. It is a reciprocal enterprise. It is a profitable sacrifice. It's a comforting duty. It's a victorious surrender. When you surrender yourself to the love of your wife. To love your wife as Christ loves the church means to sacrifice yourself for her. Pour over her daily the gospel. Build up her inner beauty. And it will pay dividends in your life that you can hardly imagine. So that Paul can not only say, love her as you love yourself, but to love her is to love yourself. Well, that brings us to a seventh distinguishing characteristic of this spirit-filled love. The husband's love must be a nourishing love. It must be a nourishing love. This is more clarification, more definition in verse 29. Paul says, No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we're members of his body. 
Just in case you haven't gotten the picture, just in case there's any doubt in your mind as to what exactly Paul's talking about when he's giving us these vivid, clear examples, he, he tells us, he adds this clarifying point that, it, hey, I'm talking about things like nourishing and cherishing your own body. This is what it means. Nourish. Ektrefe is the word. It basically means to feed. To provide all the essentials for life. This is fundamental how you take care of your body. It's very practical. You love your wife in a very practical way by providing for her needs. This is spirit-filled love. This is what God has called you to. If you're going to be a spirit-filled lover, it is to be, among other things, a provider. To be one who provides, one who feeds, one who supplies the essentials of life. God didn't entrust this responsibility to your wife. God didn't intend her to bear the burden of being the provider. He didn't create marriage as some sort of pragmatic partnership where you sort of weigh all your options and you decide that your wife might in fact be a more capable provider and so you give that role to her. God has created marriage and He has called you as a spirit-filled husband to be one who nourishes, who feeds, who provides. It's essential for God's plan. Essential. He's created roles Distinct roles for both husband and wife. And among the roles that he's given to a husband, among the ways that he is called to love his wife as Christ loved the church, to love her with spirit-filled love, is that he takes it upon himself to provide for her needs. He takes it upon himself, in other words, to be the breadwinner. To be the primary financial provider for his home. And he doesn't cast that burden on his wife. He doesn't abdicate his responsibility. Because somehow in his mind... It makes more sense that maybe, maybe he's worked it out on paper that she can make more money working a full-time job than he can. Well, work too then. Work too. But don't abdicate your responsibility. John MacArthur says, don't forget you're, divinely, uh, you're her divinely ordained provider and protector. But should that responsibility ever overwhelm you, recall that God is your provider and protector and He will help you do all that He requires, end quote. You might be thinking, now pastor, please, don't bring up this archaic, sort of chauvinistic idea that a woman's place is in the home. All right, don't try to tell me that this, that, 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 that this or the Bible teaches that a woman's place is in the home. That's exactly what I'm telling you. Titus 2.5, women are to love their husbands and their children, be self-controlled, pure, and working at home. He's not talking about, by the way, the little sign that promises to double your income in a weekend, you know, working at home. <laughs> He's talking about domestic responsibility. He's referring to the role that God has assigned to women to be primarily involved with the domestic duties in the home, in contrast to their husbands who are to be the nourishers, the providers. That, of course, used to be the norm. 1960, nearly 75% of women with children under the age of 18 stayed at home with them. Fifty years later, that number has plummeted to 25. In the same time, the number of single-parent households has tripled, 
largely due to the fact of divorces and unwed pregnancies, so that more today, more than 50% of the workforce in America is women. More than 50%. Bill Bennett was writing about this recently on CNN.com, noting how that today, women earn bachelor's degrees at twice the rate of men. Twice the rate. That's 66 to 33 in case you're struggling with math. He goes on to say, quote, For the first time in history, women are better educated, more ambitious, and arguably more successful than men. Now, society has rightly celebrated the ascension of one sex. We said, you go, girl, and they went. <laughs> we celebrate the ascension of women. But what will we do about what appears to be the very real decline of the other sex? The data doesn't bode well for men. In 1970, men earned 60% of all college degrees. In 1980, the figure fell to 50%. By 2006, it was 43%, and now it approaches 35%. Staggering. The warning signs for men stretch far beyond their wallets. Men are more distant from a family or their children than they've ever been. Out of wedlock birth rate is more than 40% in America. In 1960, only 11% of children in the U.S. lived apart from their fathers. In 2010, that share has risen 27%. Men are also less religious than ever before. According to Gallup polling, 39% of men reported attending church regularly in 2010 compared to 47% of women. And if you don't believe the numbers, just ask any young woman today about men. You'll find them talking about prolonged adolescence, men who refuse to grow up. I've heard too many young women asking, where are the decent single men? There's a maturity deficit, he says, among men out there. Men are falling behind. He says in another place, man's response has been pathetic to this rise of ascendancy of the female. He says, today, 18 to 34-year-old men spend more time playing video games than 12 to 17-year-old boys. While women are graduating college and finding good jobs, too many men are not going to work, not getting married, not raising families. Women, women are beginning to take the place of men in many ways. And this has led some people to ask, do we even need men? It's a fair question. You might wonder whether or not this is the cause of the abdication of men to their role or if it's the result But it is, it is obvious to any who open their eyes that this has paralleled an equally unprecedented decline in the family. While the divorce rate has hovered around 50% for the last 50 years, it's only because there are an additional 25% who never bother to get married. Cohabitations on the rise every year with an overwhelming rate of breakups, which really ought to be recorded with the divorce rate if you want to see really how desperate a situation couples are in America so that nearly all relationships, seven, excuse me, nearly 75% of all relationships, whether it is married or cohabitation, end in a breakup of some sort. So clearly, whatever formula people are following isn't working. It isn't working. The pragmatism of new paradigms for the home and family aren't producing happier relationships. 
the ascendancy of the working wife has paralleled an equally descend, descending American family. But God's paradigm has always stood as the haven for those willing to follow it, for those seeking rest. It isn't necessarily the path to material prosperity. In fact, sometimes following it requires sacrifice. But if your goal is the kind of relationship that's characterized by spirit-filled love, it is the path you will choose and the path that you'll find to be the greatest blessing in your life. I remember my wife and I, when we first began to consider what the Bible says about roles of husbands and wife, came to the conviction of God's Word. We began to draw her back from her employment, bring her home. And we saw a transformation from us in our newlywed days where we would be at work all day and both come home and scavenge around to kind of pull together some food, wash up the dishes, clean the clothes for the next day, prepare a few lunches and crash in bed. We slowly began to realize God's word and pull back the responsibilities of financial provision from her and unleashed for us the greatest blessing that we had known at that point in our marriage. We suddenly realized that our relationship was growing deeper, our conversations more meaningful, our companionship was strengthening. I found that I was somewhat amazingly able to take on more burden, more work, sometimes two and three jobs, because when I came home, what I found was a haven, what I found was a place of rest, what I found was an environment that recharged my batteries like I'd never known. Although I was working harder than I ever worked, what I was finding was more deeper, more meaningful time at home than I'd ever known. Paul says, Spirit-filled love nourishes your wife. It does all these things. It provides an environment where she can flourish in her inner beauty, in her inner character, bathing her with the gospel, taking care of her by nourishing her, providing her needs. And Paul adds to that, spirit-filled love also involves cherishing, which literally is the word for warming. Some people think it simply means that he's, the husband clothes his wife and provides a home as well as feeding her. Well, certainly, at the very least, that's what it means. I think it's more than that. The only other time it's used in the New Testament is 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 where Paul speaks about a nursing mother tenderly cherishing her newborn babe. That's the picture that I really think Paul's pick, uh, picking up here. A picture of a loving husband, a spirit-filled lover is that he will be a cherisher of his wife. Courageously and graciously providing for her material needs, but also tenderly and gently providing for her emotional needs. That's really that tender, cuddling, cherishing of a nursing mother. What she's really doing is she's bonding emotionally with her baby, right? Much more so than any kind of physical warming, though that's an element of it. There's that, there's that, there's that emotional closeness, that emotional cherishing. It's just second nature. For her and for her baby. Paul says this will be taking place. When you are a spirit-filled husband, this is what will be taking place. You're not only going to look at your duty as being fulfilled when you've brought home a paycheck, but you're going to somehow realize that if you've failed to cherish your wife, you've failed to really love her with spirit-filled love. 
All this, Paul says, Christ does for his body. And we know it. We know it. When we are in need, we, we naturally yearn and cry out and, and pray and call out to the Lord as our provider. When we're fearful, when we're worried, we naturally take those cares and concerns to Him. We lay them at His feet and we find a place of rest. All of those things that Christ does for the church, Paul says this is what a spirit-filled husband does for his wife. This is what it looks like, he says. Plain and simple. Plain and simple. Eighth distinguishing characteristic we briefly can mention as we sort of wrap up here. Paul says a husband's love will be because you're one flesh with your wife. This is sort of his validation. Verse 31, he, he goes back after everything that he said, wanting to sort of put a stamp of, of explanation, exclamation on it. He does so by quoting the scripture. Quotes from Genesis 2, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. All this sort of, he says, he says, everything I'm saying about you loving your wife as your own body, everything I'm saying about you nourishing her and cherishing her, everything I'm saying about the man who loving his wife loves himself, everything I'm saying is built into God's design for marriage from the beginning. This isn't some first century picture, some archaic picture of, of a chauvinistic idea of marriage. This is what God built into marriage. That a husband will fulfill all these roles. That a wife would come alongside of him in her submissiveness. And joined together, they would operate as one flesh. Your heart throbbing through her, your life pulsating, her life pulsating through yours as well. This unique relationship, so unique by the way that you will never be called by, uh, with anyone else in this world, never can you be referred to as one flesh. Not with your parents, not with your children, not with your best friend. No matter how much you think you love them, no matter how much uh, they seem so dear to you. No matter how much you may have at times put them in, in, in place of your spouse. God never designed them to be one flesh with you. Only your spouse and so relative to her you forsake all others and you hold fast, Paul says. You hold fast to her. And the two become one flesh. The word hold fast is an interesting word. It's a word for gluing. The gluing of two things together. It's not like a, an alloy, the admixture of different elements making into some sort of a, a piece of metal that loses all the, the distinctive qualities of, of both ingredients. It's more like the welding together of two inseparable distinct lives. Welding together permanently so that they can now, by the combined a tensile strength of their two lives together, they can face whatever trials, whatever challenges come to them. Paul says this is, this is the way God designed it. This is the way God built it. You're one flesh together with her. And he adds, he adds there, verse 32, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. 
Paul says, look, what I'm saying is the spiritual union that you have by God's design with your wife, what I'm trying to tell you is it's paralleled by the spiritual union that you have with Christ. That's why the paradigm fits. That's why it works. That's why we look at the, at the union that we have with Christ and the way that He loves us and the way He provides for us and the way that we're members of His body. That's why we look at that and that paradigm carries over. And it's a mystery. You want me to tell you everything that's involved with a husband being one flesh with his wife? I can't. Because it's a mystery. It isn't, it isn't even fully comprehensible. But it's parallel. There's a picture, there's a paradigm that matches it, and it's the paradigm of Christ in the church. So Paul says, look, this is what God's designed. This is the way He wanted marriage to be. This is how He has put us together. He's, he's, he's designed marriage with this profound oneness, and yet this divine distinctiveness. Husbands loving and purifying and beautifying and providing for the wives. Wives submitting to and honoring and following their husbands. That's Paul's summary in verse 33. This mystery, he says, uh, yeah, it applies to Christ and the church, but also... Let each of you love his own wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is God's design for marriage as well. That each one of us would enjoy the mutual and complementary benefits, reciprocal benefits of spirit-filled love as we carry out and follow God's design for marriage. It's a, in, in one sense, it's a choice. You, you can choose to follow God's design. You can receive all the benefits, all the joys, all the, all the blessedness of it, or you can choose to go some other route. Take your risk on the failed paradigms of the world. Or join the rat race with everyone else. The results are obvious. In one sense, I guess you could say it's a choice, but really it's not because the Lord's commanded it of you. The Lord has commanded it. That if you are a believer in Christ, that you, that you build your marriage this way. That you build your marriage as a husband who loves his wife as Christ loved the church. And you build your marriage as a wife who honors and respects, adores, and submits to her husband. You do that. You not only have the blessing of knowing you're walking in obedience to Christ, you have the blessing that God has built in to the way He designed marriage. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed in a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful, so grateful that you have given us a picture and a paradigm of love so that we're not cast into the tossing waves of, of human emotions that so wreck marriages cast here and there by all the circumstances of life following after the broken paradigms and models of marriage around us lord we're so grateful that you've given us not only the love of christ in our minds but you've poured it out in our hearts by the holy spirit you've enabled us to walk in this so that we can know a oneness that exceeds even the natural oneness of marriage a oneness that that touches even the spiritual union that we have as brothers and sisters in christ in our marriages lord our only prayer 
today is that you would help husbands to step up to this challenge. That they would seek in every way to love their wives with spirit-filled love. And that by that, Lord, you would transform the homes and the marriages among us. Lord, we pray that that would only happen, uh, happen not only for our own blessing, but also for the testimony of the grace of Christ, the love of Christ for His church that will be seen in our marriages. Make our homes lighthouses so that a lost and dying world can see what the love of Christ looks like. Lord, we pray that You would do all these things not only for our blessing, but for your glory. It's in that, that sake, for that sake that we pray in Christ's name. Amen.